Right, our, our first med- reading is from James. <coughs> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Of course, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and and unstable in all they do. Then over to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin then, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And our second reading is from Proverbs, chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food. And drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to the learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests 
are deep in the realm of the dead. I've left my Bible. (laughs) Well, just like it's good for me to have my Bible, it's good for you to have yours. Open to James chapter 1. If you're not familiar with where James is, it's right at the back of the New Testament, so back of the the Bible. Uh, It's after Hebrews, which is a nice big one. So if you find Hebrews, head to the back, uh, and it's sitting there. We are starting a series uh, in the book of James. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time uh, to get all the way through, but we will come back uh, to chapters 4 and 5 a little bit later on. Now, let me introduce you to the book of James just a little. It starts quite simply. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. It's a letter from a bloke called James to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So why is this of any interest to us? Why are we looking at a letter that was written 2,000 years ago by a bloke called James to a whole lot of Israelites scattered around the ancient Roman Empire? Well, simply, James is one of the 66 books of the Bible. And here at Trinity, we understand that God's word, the scriptures, is God's word, not just to the original people, but it's God's word to us. And so we're going to spend some time wrestling with what James is teaching. But who is he? Who is this guy James, you know? He looks very austere here. I don't think this looks anything like what James probably looked like. Um, The best scholars, I think, uh, reckon that James is actually James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, That he was initially part of Jesus' family. They were all sceptics. He wasn't initially part of Jesus' family. Initially, Jesus' family were all sceptics. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus actually appears particularly to James. And we see uh, that this man, Jesus' half-brother, this sceptical man, becomes a leader in the early church. So the Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians. He speaks of a time after three years after his conversion. He goes up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. And I saw none other of the apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So he groups James along with these leaders of the church, the apostles. So here we have James, Jesus's brother, writing Uh, as a leader in the Jerusalem church. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. What is that? Okay, the 12 tribes. How many tribes in Israel? 12. He's writing to Israelites. And he's writing to Israelites who have been scattered among the nations. These Israelites are Christians. And again, I think the best commentators suggest that What happened in the early church we find in the book of Acts. So we have a guy called Stephen, you might know in Acts chapter 7, who is murdered uh, judicially uh, by his opponents. And here we have Acts 8 verse 1. Saul approved of their killing of him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. And so... 
Let me give you this scenario. Here you have James, a leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to that church which has been scattered. It's been scattered through the local area and, as we read in Acts, beyond by the persecution that broke out in this early time within the church. If you like dates, this is probably mid-40s. And so what we're talking about is one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. And so here we have a letter written by a leader in the Jerusalem church to his church which has been scattered by persecution. They couldn't do church online, didn't happen. Okay, so he sends them a letter. Now, James, I don't know, you're familiar with the book of James. Lots of people love it. Lots of people find it really, really hard. And we find it hard because it's not like Paul. Now, Paul writes 13 letters in the New Testament, and we get Paul because Paul, he was shaped by Greek thought, and Greeks think in lines. And we also are shaped by Greek thought, and we think in lines. We make our arguments logically. So I'm going to give you in the moment my three points of my sermon. And there's going to be a logical progression from one to two to three. Okay, that's how we do things. But in Jewish thought, they didn't do that. And so when you read James, it's like a tapestry and he takes this thread and he weaves it with this thread and this thread and he comes back to things and he repeats things. But if you're from a culture that's not an Anglo culture, that's how things work. And you sit around and you have conversations and they go round and round and round in circles. I've heard about African preachers. African preachers who preach for like three hours. And they tell me they say the same thing again and again and again. Is that right? You guys have been in Africa, yes? Yeah, okay. Um, It's a different way of doing it. It's not right, it's wrong. It's not wrong, it's just different. It's very Jewish. And so we struggle with it because it's sometimes hard to see exactly what James is getting at. But not only that, the question is, it's, if you've read James, you could, be, you could be, be asking yourself, where in James is Jesus? It's kind of like, where's Wally? Okay, and for those of you who are going to start looking, I can show you, there he is there. Okay, they're the four guys. I knew someone was going to spend their, they're going to be, Not listening to me. No, I've spoilt it. Okay, there's arrows. There's the cat's tail, the dog's tail, and all the others. I found it last night. It took me hours. (laughs) But guys like Martin Luther, Luther originally, when he comes to the book of James, he struggles. He's like, why is this even in the Bible? He wanted, in in his initial sort of time, uh, he wanted it actually out of the Bible. You think, "That's that's a big call. Um, He called it an epistle of straw because where's Jesus? uh, John Calvin, another one of the great reformers, he he was a bit more polite. He said, uh, James speaks of Jesus and the cross less than it is uh, appropriate for an apostle to do. (laughs) You know, you've got to talk more about Jesus. It's very different to Paul. What we have in James is, I would like to suggest, and other commentators will say this, is New Testament 
wisdom literature. So if you've read the Old Testament and you've read books like Proverbs, Margaret read chapter 9 for us this morning, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the great themes of the Old Testament, they seem to be not there. Where's the Exodus? Where's the law? Where's Moses? Where's Sinai? And what you have in the Old Testament, those things are assumed. And they talk about what life is like with those things in place. But their job isn't to unpack those things. It's to talk about what it is to live life. And that is what James is doing. And we, we see in James something that is incredibly practical. And we will see that this morning. Now, I want to start after that intro. I want to ask you a question. If someone came up, maybe you've copped this one at work. Someone worked out that you were at church on Sunday and they go, are you religious? Do we like that word? Does anyone like that word? Does anyone want to say they're religious? Okay. There's often strong negative associations with being religious. We think of it in terms of formality. We think of it in terms of even hypocrisy. But it's interesting. So does James. And in the book of James, he wants to teach us about this. Verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. He wants to show us what pure and faultless religion looks like. What it looks like to get that right. And because... um, We don't like the word religion. I just Googled it, put it in thesaurus. uh, And another word for religion is devotion, hence the name of our series. What does pure and blameless devotion to God look like? And this morning we're looking at the fact, we're looking at what that looks like in the face of trials. There's my three linear points. One fact, two options three responses. Do you like how progressive that is? Okay, you know, it's because I'm shaped by Greek thought, okay, as are you. That's why you like it. Okay, so I've taken James, the Hebrew, and I've mashed him into Greek thought for us. So let's go into it. One fact, verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. What is our one fact? You will face trials of many kinds. It's not an if, it's a when. James is speaking to a people who face trials and this morning James is still speaking by the Holy Spirit to a people who face trials. What is a trial? Is it suffering? Persecution, sickness, setbacks, evil. What comes to mind when you're thinking about trials? Can I say, I don't think that's what James was thinking of. All those things are external. There are things out there. That is what James is talking about. See, the idea 
that is conveyed in this word trial. If you go back to the original language and you look it all up, the idea is one of testing, one of refining, one of testing to see if something is real, one of removing impurity. And I would like to suggest that what James is teaching us is that these things, suffering, persecution, evil, sickness, setbacks and other stuff, provide the occasion for the trial. But they themselves are not the trial because the trial is what is actually happening inside. The trial is not external. The trial is internal. James teaches us that the trial is in our hearts. Because what happens when we face trials of many kinds? What would you be saying if you were in Melbourne at the moment for the fifth lockdown? Or Sydney as the Premier week after week extends things? Or South Africa as you've seen your shop trashed and you're wondering where the food is coming from. Or you've been to the doctor and they've mentioned the C word. Or a host of other things. Those things make us ask questions. Those things, they create a response in us, they challenge our trust and our dependence on God. And that is the trial. The trial is of our faith. We're challenged to think about, do we trust God's person? Is God good? Is God good? Do we trust his purpose? This is what God is doing. If this is the road... Do I really want to get there? If this is what God is doing in my life, do I want what he wants for me? Or maybe there's a better option. Do we trust God's power? If this is happening, is God really in control? The trial is not the external event. The external event provides the opportunity for the trial to happen in us and we know this don't we we've experienced this let me give you an insignificant thing i had one ambition when i left school and that was to do medicine in sydney and i get my little results actually no i didn't get my results my mother this is back in the day when they posted them to you you didn't go online they posted them to you the postman came. I was out. I get a phone call. You better come home. Mum had opened my results. <laughs> That's another trial. <laughs> but I'd missed it by just that much. And I was convinced that that was what I was meant to do. And so then I'm asking myself all these kind of questions. The event provokes the trial. The event itself is not the trial. That's external. It's what's happening in your heart. 
And the interesting thing is, it's not just bad stuff. There are more dangerous threats in this world than sickness, suffering, persecution, setback, evil. Blessing can actually provide more of a threat than all those things. Why? Because often we just don't see the danger. It's interesting, you talk to Christians in the third world who are facing trials that we look at and go, oh, they're facing persecution and deprivation. And what they pray for is not that those things stop. And they look at us and they pity us for our comfort. I read in the book of Acts this morning when the early church is facing persecution and they don't pray that the persecution stops. They pray that they might stand and serve God faithfully underneath it. And they praise God that they were worthy of suffering for the name. But we look at it and think, oh, those things are terrible. Let me take you to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Look at that. Is that a prayer that you pray? The first one, I get it. But give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Often in blessing, the trial is when our hearts say, do we even need God at all? Matt and Jane introduced us to the idea of faith needing a workout. There's a great little book, helpful little book. Uh, has anyone come across a book called Anti-Fragile? No. Okay, you guys need to read more, okay? Or maybe I need to read less. This guy makes a point, and he said, there's some things in this life that are fragile. A china cup, if I had one up here and I drop it, even though we've got a reasonably soft floor here, it's probably going to break. Yes, things are by nature fragile. Some things are by nature resilient. So if I get like a, a melamine cup, we worked this out with our kids fairly early on, uh, they were given really nice, like, Royal Dalton bowls. And we're like, oh, as parents, young, naive, uh, let's use them for the kids. So the kids worked out that they were fragile pretty quick. Uh, chuck it on the floor, smash. Okay, we went very quickly to resilient bowls. Melamine, they could throw them wherever. Okay, they are never going to break. Okay. So there are some things that are fragile. There are some things that are resilient. And this guy says there are some things in this world that are actually anti-fragile. There are things that actually need to be tested to get stronger. Our bodies are one of those things. If we never exercise, we decompose, don't we? Okay, some of us know that uh, uh, vividly, uh, that is there. Our immune system, if it's going to actually develop and grow stronger, it needs to get challenged. Faith is anti-fragile. It needs challenge. 
And as we go through trials, James here is saying, count it joy, brothers and sisters. God is challenging you. God is putting you in this circumstance. He's not leading you astray. James says that later. But he's allowing these things. He is ordaining these things to grow you in strength. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Okay, let's go to our second point. When you face these trials, you've got two options. Now, this is where James is very much in the wisdom category. If you've read the book of Proverbs, there are two options again and again and again. There's the rich and the poor. There's the life and death. There's wise and foolish. You can go through all these things. There are always two options. And here, James uses wisdom categories. He breaks our options down into two simple things. And I've called them two roads. You can either walk down Wisdom Way or you can stroll down Seduction Street. You're faced with trials. What do you do if you're on Wisdom Way? Follow me along with verse three, uh, two, 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face, many, face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Produce, uh, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wisdom way meets the trial with faith. I know who God is. I trust his person. I know that his purpose is good. He is at work. I see the goal that he is leading me to is desirable. You meet it with faith. And that produces perseverance. And perseverance finishes its work to bring us to maturity, to completeness, to not lacking anything. Another way, if, if I was Paul or he was Paul, he'd say Christ-likeness. This is what grows us up in our faith. James is saying trials met with faith produce perseverance, produce maturity, and in the end... James in verse 12 tells us that blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, the laurel wreath, victory. Not some earthly glory, but the glory that we will share with Christ. That is wisdom way. That is what God is doing. As we face trials of many kinds, he is leading us down a road. A road that leads to the crown of life. That is there. But there's another option that I've called Seduction Street. Where instead of meeting trials with faith, you meet them with doubt. Can I trust God? Is God good? Has he got this? Is he in control of this? And we look for other options. Maybe following God is not the best option or maybe following God only is not the best option. And so I need to have a few other options in play. I need to have not just plan A, but I need B, C, D. James tells us 
that such a person is double-minded. Such a person who says, I'm not sure that God's got this. They start to look at something else. A guy called Dan Allender said this. He said, we cannot fail to trust God with, without turning our trust to something that becomes a new God for us. So we say, you haven't got this God. So I'm going to look here or here or here. We're looking for God's substitutes. We're looking for rivals. And James here shows us that this rejection of God is at the heart of sin. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It's an internal trial, isn't it? Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Do you see what the image is here that James is using for sin and for temptation? It's seduction. Do you think, do you think of sin in those terms? That a false god, that a rival for your god's love is coming and trying to lure you away and drag you off and entice you. Like in Proverbs 9, where you have wisdom, this wonderful woman, and then you have folly, who's seeking to entice in the simple and the foolish. They're both there. James shows us just how cunning the sin within our hearts is did god say can you trust him is he good do you really want what he's offering surely this is better and when we start to listen to this we are walking down seduction street and james tells us that when we meet trials with doubt Desire gives birth to sin, which when full-grown gives birth to death. There are two options. You are going to face trials of many kinds. Will you walk wisdom way or seduction street? Let's conclude with three responses. I don't normally like this little thing. Uh, find it a little bit trite, but I couldn't find a better one this morning. So head, heart and hands, there are three things. Head. Wisdom is learned. Wisdom is not just knowledge. It's more than knowledge, but it includes knowledge. Wisdom is what takes what you know of God and what you know of how he works what you know of salvation and Christ and the cross, and it works out how to live on this planet, how to live in the day-by-day reality of life. We need to learn from God. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. 
the writer tells us to rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. If you are to be wise, listen to the word of God because all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, instructing and training in righteousness. It is God there who encounters us and teaches us of himself. Not just stuff about him, but teaches us of himself. Gives us himself. We know him, his person, his purpose and his power. This morning in my Bible reading, I read of the death and resurrection of Christ. We're not going to face trials of the scale that our Lord Jesus did, will we? Put on trial, falsely accused, condemned to a shameful death. When he faces trials of many kinds, the Lord Jesus meets them with faith. He could have called the angels, he tells us, and they would have saved him. Ten legions. I think they've got the Romans licked at that point. But he didn't. He could have spoken a word and it could have all just stopped. The one who holds the universe together walked wisdom's way. He met trials with faith and God showed himself faithful through the cross And so as we think about things, we not only need to learn of him, we need to go with our hearts to Christ. Hebrews says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We haven't got someone who's miles above us, who just doesn't know what it's like. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. That word tempt We could also translate as test or made to endure trials. Same word. As we face trials, Christ faced trials. And he faced trials that we will never encounter. He endured them to the extremity of what temptation could throw at him. We tend to think of Jesus as kind of wearing a Teflon suit, don't you? Okay, how could he be touched by that? How could he know what it's like to sit there with the computer open wondering, will I type in those words to bring up that search or to do other things that you know aren't great? Only the person who has endured to the end knows the extremity of the trial. How does that work? I've got a hill near me. Uh, Is anyone, uh, top of Morfitt Road, going up to O'Halloran's Hill, it gets pretty steep, doesn't it? Okay, normally when I set my task on to run up that hill, I make it about a third of the way up that hill. Okay, and then I give up. Have I faced the trial to its end? No. The person who knows the, the extent of that trial is the person who's actually run the whole way up that hill, haven't they? And they get to the top and they keep going. Jesus did that for us. He knows our 
depths, the depths of the trials that we face. And he is able, Hebrews tells us, to empathize with our weakness. So we should go to him. We should approach the throne of God to seek uh, mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We go to him because he is our representative. He gets us and he can give us what we need. In verse 5, James tells us that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously and doesn't find fault. We should go to him. We should pray as the man in Mark prays, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But Jesus is more than just an example, more than just a helper. He's our saviour. Does it ever occur to you, has it occurred to you maybe this morning, that Jesus is the only one who faultlessly walked wisdom way, who gets to the end and deserves the crown of life? But he suffers the fate of fools, doesn't he? He suffers the fate of those who walked seduction street that leads to sin, desire and to death even though he was without sin. And he did it for us. So we need to instruct our heads, but we need to take our hearts in worship to our great high priest. We need to go to him to seek his help. And we need to let him show us both the wisdom of walking wisdom way, but the cost of the rejection. Last point, our hands. What can we do practically? James is practical. Can I just say, we've done it this morning. We've shared big days. That's one thing we do more formally here as a church, where we share the joys and the sorrows, where people give testimony to God's goodness and their thankfulness to the trials that they face. It was a wonderful thing last week. So sad when Annie shared with us about her mum. But then I saw brother and sister come up and comfort her and speak to her and Joe about the goodness and grace of God. What can we do? We can encourage others. We can bear witness to how we have seen God faithful, powerful, perfect we can bear one another's burdens we can share what we are learning in God's word we can weep with those who weep we can rejoice with those who rejoice we can entrust ourselves to the God who is faithful James tells us consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because James knows, because of the gospel of grace, that God is good, that he's got this covered, and that his end is better than you could possibly imagine. To be complete 
and mature in him, not lacking anything, is the highest good. And James knows that God has got this. So let me leave you with these words. Consider it pure joys, brothers and sisters here at Trinity Church Brighton. When you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful promise this is. That you have opened before us a way. It's not an easy way. But Lord, you give us in Christ everything that we need to walk it. You give us wisdom. You give us grace. You give us mercy. Father, help us to be wise. Not just smart, but wise about how to live for you about how to face trials of many kinds, knowing that you are good, that you are powerful, and where you are taking us is beyond compare. And we pray these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen.